Morning, everybody. Uh, apparently, yesterday, the uh, English football team went to visit an orphanage in Brazil. It was so difficult looking at all their sad little faces full of no hope, said Jose, aged six. It's, uh, it's, it, it's, good, it's good to be here, and uh, I am certainly looking forward to all, as I said last night, all that God is going to be doing uh, through us and, and in us at this, at this weekend. Now, I'm conscious there's the full range of folks here. Uh, I want to try and keep the teens as engaged as possible while we're doing this. And so I have a couple of questions, a couple of little teasers uh, that uh, Peter's going to put up on the screen here, first of all. And I want to know if we can get answers to these uh, in terms of what I'm actually going to say. First of all, the word Melchizedek. I'd like you to work out whether you think that is a breed of Egyptian camel, an unknown Old Testament character, or a member of the Greek World Cup squad. Okay, so sit and think about that and uh, decide if you can work out the answer to that. Now, the next one I do actually want you to see if I can get three or four answers to. And the nearest one, uh, I will buy you an ice cream uh, from Maud's this evening, okay? So team group only. The next question is this. The phrase, the Lord says, appears over 370 times in the Old Testament. How many times does it occur in the Psalms? Now, so let's have three or four answers from the teens, and then I will, uh, I, I will see who is the closest. Okay, any ideas? Any, any answers? Okay, hands up and answer. There's a nice cream writing on this, yes? 102. Okay. 280 from the 19-year-old in the second row here. That's grand. Okay. Uh, any, any others? Yeah, yes, Chloe? Sorry? 72. I'll take one more answer from a teenager. Okay. 180. Okay, right. Well, listen out for the answer, okay, as I speak. Okay, you can take that off now in case it uh, bothers folks. Well, I, I, uh, I wonder what y your favorite hymn or worship song is. Uh, there's always these surveys that are done, isn't there, in, you know, the, the Radio Times or uh, the, uh, uh, some of the BBC website and things like that. You know, what is your favorite, what is your favorite hymn? Uh, and, of course, among a generally non-church going public, it tends to be limited to a couple of well-known ones. But apparently, uh, in England... Maybe unsurprisingly, um, the favourite hymn in every survey that's been done in the last, you know, 50 years or whatever has been one that you might hear in the terraces of Brazil at the moment that begins, And did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Uh, Blake's poem, Jerusalem. Uh, and of course, the amazing thing about that poem, uh, really, apart from its striking lack of theological content, uh, <coughs> is the fact that it asks uh, a basic question, uh, to which the very simple answer is no. Uh, in fact, the whole hymn asks a series of about half a dozen questions, to which every answer is no. So, a little bit pointless, you would think. 
Because for all maybe the patriotic favor, fervor that comes at this time of year of World Cup, or even in our own land when we think of flags and all of that that's going on, the basic Christian message, which we can't hear enough time and time again, is that as people of the living God, we serve a different king. We march under the flag of the cross. We, we march to a different beat. Uh, and it's not about whether or not Jesus sanctified our particular country by walking on our particular turf. Enough about old hymns then. What about your favorite psalm? I guess, again, something like Psalm 23 would always come up in, in the surveys. But interestingly enough, Psalm 23, for all its popularity, is never quoted in the New Testament. Many of the Psalms are, but the one that is quoted the most, I think you would struggle to name. The Psalm that is quoted seven times and alluded to around 15 times in the New Testament is the one we're going to look at now, which is Psalm 110. Okay? Psalm 110. Let's uh, read this together. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a shadowy Old Testament figure. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift up his head. Amen. Now, I think this psalm, more than any other, uh, will, this, this psalm, more than any other, shows us uh, what the kingship of Christ is, is all about. It's, uh, it's important for us to understand that the Old Testament does speak about Jesus. The Old Testament does point to him. He is present in the Psalms, and nowhere more so than in this Psalm, where in seven very brief verses, we see a lot coming together that points us to who Jesus the King is. I suppose to use another football analogy, this is a psalm of two halves. Uh, each half begins, the word of the Lord, or the Lord said, and then in verse 4, the Lord swore an oath, or the Lord promised. And then each half tells us different things about this Jesus. One of the reasons, I guess, that the Psalms are so popular is that for here, in the middle of our Bible, there is a large section. In, in the middle of a Bible where God is speaking to us, there is a large section where we speak to God. Now, it's quite complicated here because, of course, the whole Bible is God speaking to us. So even in the Psalms, God is speaking to us. But it's in the context of us speaking to Him. It's a little bit like that chocolate birthday cake that was circulating last night, um, which I hope you got some of it because it was very nice. Uh, so the whole thing is the cake. Okay, so like the Bible, the whole thing is God speaking to us. But in the middle of it, you have this layer of creamy chocolate, which, if you like, is like the Psalms, and that's us speaking to God. 
And then I want you to imagine if in the middle of that creamy bit in the middle there had been a little line of jam. That would be Psalm 110 because in the middle of the Bible there is the Psalms where we speak to God and then in the Psalms you have this Psalm where suddenly God starts speaking to us again. Psalm 110 where uh, you're in the context of us praising God is a, is a song where even when we're using it, it's suddenly God is speaking to us. We're, we're reminding ourselves, we're preaching to each other about what God has said to us. We might skip over that simple phrase at the very beginning, the Lord says. Uh, it's that phrase, as I said in the quiz at the beginning, uh, in Hebrew, Na'um Adonai, the oracle of the Lord. It's all through the prophets. It's 370 times in the Old Testament, but in the Psalms, it occurs once. So, Chloe, you get an ice cream tonight from me. It occurs once, the only time in the whole Psalter. Because I think here something very different is happening. You know, we think we're talking to God and suddenly we realize that God is talking to us. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this in, in his book on the Psalms, where, where Your Treasure Is. He writes this. I had it marked. I did see a few people looking at this earlier on. <laughs> they've they've uh, changed my... Uh... Ah, no, they didn't. They haven't. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Christoph Ebbinghaus and John O'Donnell, you're okay. You didn't, move, you didn't take it. That's all right. Eugene Peterson says this. We want prayers that will bring us daily benefits in the form of a higher standard of living with occasional miracles to relieve our boredom. We come to the Bible as consumers, rummaging through texts to find something at a bargain. We come to worship as gourmets of the emotional, thinking that the, the numinous might provide a nice supplement to sonnets and sunsets and symphonies. We read, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and our hearts flutter. We read, you will not fear the terror of the night, and we're tranquilized. We read, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins, and we decide that we've probably been too hard on ourselves. But when we come to Psalm 110 and read, the Lord says, the Lord has sworn, our interest flags, and we reach for the newspaper to find out how the stock market is doing. It's not the most immediate, it's not the most fetching, it doesn't seem to be the most exciting of psalms. And yet at the end of it all, we realize that here God is speaking to us. This weekend, we want to listen to God. Whatever age we are, we're thinking of what it means for Christ to be king in our lives. And this psalm has a king as a focus. We may think there's two characters emerging from this psalm. And in your handout, you'll see that there are little structures there for you if you want to follow what I'm saying. The notes are there. We think that there might be two characters, the king and the priest. But in a moment, I think how we'll see how actually they actually come together uh, with uh, one character, if you like, with two job descriptions. If I can say it rever reverently, it's as if there's double jobbing going on here. The king is a familiar theme throughout the Psalms. But is it just about David? Is it just about Solomon? Is it just about the ancient Israelite kings? I don't think so. If you look back um, at Psalm chapter 2, if you look back at Psalm chapter 2, you'll see there uh, something which uh, introduces us at the very beginning 
to the person of the king in the Psalms. And this is important. This is a psalm that's really written for us as we watch the television screens, as we look at the world news and the newspapers or online. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven, king, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy mountain. And then at the very end, verse 11, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or the better translation is kiss his feet, or he will be angry and you and your ways will be destroyed. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the first two Psalms introduce us to the whole book, and it's almost as if Psalm 2 prepares us for Psalm 110. If we're, think, if we're tempted to think that governments and elections and politicians and G8 summits are really all where it's at, then Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 remind us that there is a more powerful ruler to whom everybody is accountable. The enemies will be a footstool. It's a posture of humiliation. The conquering king would place his feet on the heads or the backs of those he had conquered. And here we see a king who beats all the competition. And for all of us today, the competition is fierce, isn't it? And what's portrayed in military terms in Old Testament language of Psalm 110 needs to be translated for us about all the things that are competing for our allegiance and for our loyalty. No matter what age we are, for those of you who are in the teen group, what's the competition like for Jesus where you're living and what you're doing? Who are you going to serve? Are you going to give your life over to something or someone less than what Jesus the King can offer you? It's once been said that you don't know that Jesus is everything you need until Jesus is, ever, is the only thing you have. You don't know that Jesus is everything you need until Jesus is the only thing you have, until all that other competition has proved false. All the other kings, the stuff that has been um, reigned against God in your life has been invaded and subdued by him. The kingdom of God has invaded the kingdoms of this world. So who are we going to serve? And more importantly, is he worth serving? Because verse 3 seems to give us a picture of a king who's worth getting out of bed for a king who's worth serving. It says that your troops are willing on the day of battle. There's no coercion, there's no resistance, no press ganging. And so among the enemies there's defeat and among his own people there's willing service. You see, this shows why it can't be about David or Solomon or Rehoboam or any of the other sons or grandsons that ruled Israel. Because they didn't have willing troops. The kingship, particularly of Solomon and Rehoboam, broke the backs of the people with harsh taxes and forced labor. It's a little bit like what we see behind the protests in Brazil at the moment at the World Cup about how the tournament has caused hardship and in many ways has led to, um, led to more forced labor and heavy taxes among the people. That was the experience under Rehoboam and under the later Israelite kings. So this picture of a king who has people willing to serve him, must be about someone else. Here is a king, and we get a glimpse here a little bit 
of, of, of what it is like to want to serve someone in, in a world where we don't like to be told what to do by anyone else. Again, one of the common misconceptions, particularly when you're younger, is that Jesus is a hard boss. It's tough to follow him. Well, there are aspects of the Christian life, yes, which are very tough, of course. But it's not Jesus who's the hard boss. It's this culture who's the hard boss. This culture that makes promises it can't keep, that asks more and more of you in terms of how you look, in terms of what people think of you, who'll never satisfy you if you sell your soul to career or ambition or having a good time, it's going to suck you dry. Being a Christian isn't easy, but yeah, but it's not because Jesus asks something unrealistic of you that he will not help you with. It's hard because these other gods demand everything from you and offer you nothing in return. Jesus simply asks you to trust, to trust him to give you the strength to live in a hostile environment. And when you get a glimpse of who this king is, like verse 3, you will be willing troops. You will be willing followers. He's a king worth serving. Uh, the reading, if you've got the NIV, I think in the margin, talks about uh, that the young men will come to you as the Jew. So as certainly as the Jew falls every morning, so young and strong gather to serve this King Jesus. The church will be regenerated. The church will be rejuvenated. God's people will every generation find those among them who are willing to serve. That is the encouragement. And as he has dislodged every competition to his rule by making his enemies his footstools, so he demands that there's no competition in our lives over his rule. He has invaded and extended our lives and invaded every dark recess of our lives, demanding that we hand it over to him so that he can make us the people we were created to be. And as the troops of this promised Messiah will come willingly, so too here is a king worth serving, worth fighting every spiritual battle for, worth putting our very lives on the line for in a way that nobody else could demand our absolute allegiance. And then in verse 4 we move. There's a change of emphasis. We move from the palace, if you like, to the temple and from the king to the priest. And again, these are amazing pictures. Someone says that uh, to say that these pictures of the king and the priest apply to David is a bit like putting Saul's armor on him. Do you remember that famous story of uh, David and Goliath where they tried to put Saul's armor on him and it was far, far too big and he just went out on his own? Well, to say that these pictures of being the ultimate king and the ultimate priest apply just to ancient Israel and to David, as they're trying to put that armor, it's too big for David. It must apply to someone else. In verses 1 to 3, the early church saw here Christ the King, the God who rules, in charge of the outer life of the planet, giving meaning to our horizontal social relationships with those around us, with the other nations, etc. And here, if you like, from verse 4 on, in the figure of Christ the priest, we see a God who saves, who deals with our inner life, who deals with our vertical relationship with God. And the early church in the New Testament saw in this psalm the coming together in a way that had never been together before, the king and the priest in the person of Christ. Well, actually, they'd come together once before, very briefly, in the very strange and shadowy figure in Genesis chapter 14 of the man Melchizedek. 
And the writer to the Hebrews goes back to that guy and he spends some time sometimes showing that how this is really a figure of, of Jesus. You see, there were kings, plenty of kings in Israel from Saul on and even Canaanite kings before that. Kings who were meant to rule with justice and righteousness, but they didn't. David and one or two others were as good as it got and look what happened to them. Look at their feelings. There were also priests in Israel starting with Aaron, who were meant to lead the people of God. Instead, they fleeced them, and they were greedy and godless, and at times they lived off the people. They led them away from God rather than to God. And so they needed a new king, and they needed a new priest. And the psalmist looks away back before David, away back before Aaron, away back to the days of Abraham himself, and an episode in Genesis 14. You see, as the politics of Israel developed, the kings and the priests were meant to complement one another. They were meant to deal with civic life and religious life as a unit. But they were often in conflict. And at certainly dark times, like at certain times in the life of Saul, you actually see the, the king slaughtering the priests because they didn't bow to his agenda. So the two roles were meant to work in unity to mediate God to the people, but they conspired against each other. They destroyed each other. So how could they be brought together? How could these two things, ruling wisely in terms of this world and what it means to bring the kingdom of God into this world, and mediating God to the people wisely in a way that actually brought them into the presence of God, how could those things be brought together? Well, you see... In Genesis 14 and 18, after a particular battle that Abraham was involved in, it talks about Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, coming. We never hear about him before. We never hear about him again. And it just says that he appeared and he brought, he was king in Jerusalem, it said, king in Salem, the old Jerusalem. And he brought to Abraham bread and wine because it says he was a priest of the most high God. Now you look forward. The only other example in the Bible of somebody who was a king and a priest and who nourished his people with bread and wine. One who redeemed his people for all time before he took his throne forever. A priest with no beginning and no ending. A king with an everlasting kingdom. It couldn't be anybody else. I don't know, has anybody seen M. Night Sharayan's movie Sixth Sense? <coughs> anybody seen Sixth Sense? Was it about 10 or 12 years ago? Okay, right, one of my favorite movies of all time. If you're a movie buff and you've heard about the movie and you're really dying to see it and you don't want to know how it ends, just do this for the next two minutes, okay? Um, because I'm going to do a spoiler here. But it is just the most amazing movie. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about, it's Bruce Willis, isn't it, that uh, acts as the as this child uh, psychologist. And it's about his relationship with a little boy who says that he sees dead people. And, and uh, it's how he helps this little boy. And right the way through the movie, you're watching this, and only at the end do you realize the twist that actually the Bruce Willis character himself is dead. And I get goosebumps even just thinking about this. It's so brilliantly done. And when you look back at the movie, you suddenly see that no one ever talks to the Bruce Willis character apart from this boy. P 
people look at him as if he's invisible, but it's so well done, you don't get it. And if anybody tells me they guessed it before the end, I don't believe you, okay? Right, so it is just incredible. And when you know the ending and you watch the movie again, you never see, you look at the movie the same way. And guys, when you understand the kingship and the priesthood of Jesus Christ, you never read the Old Testament the same way again. When you understand who it's pointing to, when you understand the images and the figures, you never read the Old Testament the same way again. The very last verse of this psalm is beautiful. Uh, It's quite strange. You've got this image of corpses and warfare and bloody battle and all the language that would be fitting for a, a triumphant king at this time, showing that he had conquered his enemies. And then you get this about him stopping by the stream for a drink. In fact, it's so strange that a lot of scholars and some translations even just try to change it to mean something else. But uh, Christoph and I had a professor at college who used to say, you've got perfectly good Hebrew here, don't change it, just because you don't understand it. Uh, and so you've got to look and say, well, what is the psalmist trying to say here? And there's been various explanations about coronations rights and enthronement rights and all of that. But I think it's much more simple. When Gwen and I lived in Canada and we'd walk in the mountains of British Columbia on a hot day or more recently maybe in the Tuscan mountains up and approaching a little stone village in the hills, one of the most welcome sights was a fast-running stream or a brook by the side of the road where you could bend down and drink deeply. So let's just stick with that as a simple reading. The leader of the nation stopping for a while and refreshing himself by the brook. The King Messiah vulnerable in his humanity, needing to stop for a drink, to be refreshed before continuing his conquering journey, with his head lifted high, ruling and saving, and ready to take a rightful place on the throne. Now, the reason people might want to change this is because in the words of Peterson, we can't cope with a thirsty Messiah. We want a Messiah that develops power plays and sorts out the world. They dismiss a a Messiah of verse 7 with contempt. A thirsty, kneeling Messiah was too vulnerable and too ordinary. We think of Gideon using that sort of place to choose the best men. We think of David thirsty in battle, getting his men to find him water and yet offering it up to the Lord. And then I think we can go further, can't we? To the greatest battle, the greatest cosmic battle of all. When in the words of the song, The one who gave the light hung abandoned in the night, and he who made the ocean said, I thirst. It's precisely because we have a thirsty Messiah, truly human, that his subsequent exaltation is all the more glorious. Therefore, it says, he will lift up his head. The writer of the Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who can't identify with us in our weaknesses, stopping by the brook for a drink. We have one who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And because that, he will lift up his head. He will be exalted to the highest place. Priest and king, human yet divine, vulnerable yet all-powerful, earthly yet exalted. We fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the thirst of the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So what does it mean for us 
this morning as we wrap this up to, to live for this king priest. It means that because he's the exalted king, we can be safe. We have a safe place in the security of his rule under his wings. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We're eternally secure. The enemies are vanquished. The last enemy, death, has been destroyed. Every doubt, every fear need hold nothing over us. Every ache, every tear will one day disappear. The accuser is a defeated foe. It upsets me a little bit when I see how many Christians live their lives totally without risk. Totally without risk. Maybe this is a big challenge. I guess it probably is. I'm sure as parents. That temptation can be that natural parental concern can go way beyond, of sen- way beyond normal sensible parenting. Becoming obsessed with uh, some of the things that Jesus says the pagans run after. Making sure that our family have the right schools, the right grades, they live in the right areas, but worried and frightened about stepping outside of that. There's a whole world out there. Just ask Tim and some of the others who have real first-hand experience of what it means to live at risk as a Christian, because the Christians in our world who do that do it because they're in a safe place. They're, they're under the ruleship of King Jesus. And it also means that we're free. Uh, We live freely because this priest is interceding for us in the heavens. So the king is protecting us. The priest is interceding for us. And John says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and forgives us our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you have a wrong view of that verse. I certainly did for years. When it talks about Christ interceding to the Father for us, you know what I thought that image meant? I had a vision of me going in confession, having sinned, and praying to Jesus, and Jesus going to the Father and saying, well, Father, Monty's done it again. You know, could you maybe just please, because I'm asking you, forgive him one more time? That's not what John's saying. That's not the message of grace. That's not the gospel. John says not that He is faithful and merciful. He says he's faithful and just. Because what actually happens is that uh, we can be as bold to speculate that that, that, uh, Jesus says to the Father, Father, Monty has sinned again, but because I have already borne that sin on the cross and he has confessed that you, as a matter of justice, must forgive him and not count it against him because I have already paid for that. That's what the intercession of Jesus is all about. He is reminding us that he has paid for it. Therefore, God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You have good days and bad days. Maybe you have a day when you pray and you read your Bible and you witness and you just think, wow, it's great being a Christian. God is in his heaven life, super. And then you have a bad day. And you sin against your family. You sin against God. You sin against your friends. God seems miles away. And which of those two days does God accept you more? Neither. 
He accepts you equally both days because Jesus has paid the price. Now, don't get me wrong. Your second day will affect your witness. It will affect your character. If you don't, if you don't repent, it will dishonor the sort of what you're saying with your mouths, etc., etc. But it does not affect how you stand before God. Because once you think it does, you get right the way down towards God sort of prevaricates according to how you're performing. And that is not grace. He always sees you as you are in Christ, dressed in robes you don't deserve, forgiven, ransomed sinner. And so you can get to work on walking more closely with Him and repenting of the stuff that drives you away, knowing that that your salvation doesn't depend on that. God's view of you doesn't depend on that. One of the discussion questions I've given to the teens on this issue is, how do you think God feels about you? What do you think God thinks about you? Because I think that's massive. And maybe even as adults, we haven't got around this. We think that God's view of us depends on how we're performing. He, Jesus is our priest, our high priest. He has paid the price. He intercedes for us. He is a gracious, almighty, all-loving king. Maybe God has been speaking to you this morning by his Holy Spirit. You're sitting thinking, well, how can I be really sure that I am a child of this king? I don't know if you've seen the movie The King's Speech about the speech impediment of George VI. A wonderful movie, Colin Firth character and uh, to praise George VI and how he tries therapist after therapist until he comes across this rather unorthodox Australian called Lionel Logue. And uh, if you've seen the movie, he goes along and Lionel tries to treat him and then they fall out and they have an argument. And uh, George VI's wife, who was, of course, did later become the Queen Mother, uh, played by Helena Bonham Carter, I think. She, uh, she persuades him to go back and find this therapist and apologize to him. And so he goes to his house in this little flat in London. And he walks in and uh, uh, he and the Queen Mother, the, his wife, walk in and she sits and makes herself tea in the kitchen while he goes in to see the therapist and talk to him. While they're in there, Lionel Logue's wife returns from shopping. And she has no idea that one of her husband's clients is the king. Uh, and she knows that he's been having trouble and she's given off about these awkward clients. No idea that one of them was the king. So she walks in with her shopping bags and sees the queen sitting in her dining room. And there's this wonderful moment where she's just completely gobsmacked and uh, the Queen says, uh, it's your majesty uh, for the first time. And then after that, it's uh, mom as in calm, not mom as in Pam. And, uh, and she's completely speechless. And shortly after that, of course, Lionel comes out with George VI behind him, realizes what's happened, that the cat's out of the bag. And he looks at his wife, Myrtle, and he says, uh, uh, Your Majesty Myrtle, uh, Myrtle, I don't believe you've met the King. <laughs> In many ways, the Holy Spirit is saying to us, I don't believe you've met the King. In his presence, many, perhaps all this time without realizing that a King who is like no other, a priest who brings us to God, 
and a king priest who reigns for us. Have you met the king? Let's pray. Lord God, we uh, thank you for the way in which after many false starts, there came a ruler and a king who was perfect and ushered in the kingdom. We give you thanks that after many false starts, there came a priest who did not serve his own interests or the interests of religion or nationalism, but served the deep, deep interests of his people and became not just the one who sacrificed, but who became the sacrifice, the priest who became the lamb for us. And so as we continue to think about this, open our hearts and minds, we pray that we might know what it is to live in that safe place under the king's rule and to live in that free place knowing that there is a, a priest who intercedes for us and that we would be children of the king who are secure and free because all of you, that you have done for us in Jesus' name. Amen.